Good evening and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, April 29th, 2021. What an amazing group of people that I have the privilege to spend some time with tonight. I'm grateful to every one of you for joining and for giving your time and I really look forward to what we'll be studying together tonight. Thank you very much for being here. Tonight is Lagba Omer, the 33rd day of the Omer, counting up to 50 days, 50 days from the Jewish people leaving Egypt till the revelation at Sinai. So we count 50 days, and tonight is the beginning of the 33rd day, Lagba Omer, and it's a special day. Now, one layer of what is special about this day, and I'm going to say more about this later, but one layer is it marks a connection to a very great Talmudic scholar, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, sometimes known by the acronym of his name, Rashbi, but Rabbi Shimon, the son of Yochai. And Lagba Omer has evolved into a celebration of the spiritual light and splendor that Rashbi taught and brought to the world. So it's appropriate to discuss with you tonight a famous lesson that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai taught, and it's a lesson in this week's Perik, this week's chapter of Pirkei Avos, the fourth chapter, Mishnah number 13, says as follows, very famous, I'm sure you've heard it many times. Rabbi Shimon Omer, Rabbi Shimon teaches the following lesson. Shloshak Sarimheim, there are three crowns. There are three areas in life where there is an achievement of greatness. Keser Torah, the crown of Torah. Keser Malchus, the crown of Malchus, of kingship sovereignty. And Keser Kuhuna, the crown of serving as a Kohen, as a priest. The Keser Shem Tov, however, the crown of a good name, Ole Al Gabehen, is greater than all of them. A few weeks ago, a couple of months ago, I had the opportunity to speak to many of you, to, to many of you about my grandfather, Sam Margolin, of blessed memory. And I didn't have a chance really to speak about this, but among his many other accomplishments, my grandfather loved to teach, especially Pirkei Avos. And he had a unique style of teaching. He was eloquent. He had perfect timing. He always shared humorous and heartwarming stories. He could create an atmosphere of intimacy while inspiring every audience he addressed. I cannot possibly recreate the experience of hearing my grandfather speak. But he loved this Mishnah, this passage, in particular, this teaching of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. So I will try 
to share at least some of the substance of what he said about this passage. It seems at the first look that this passage gives one a sense of security, a sense of encouragement and hope. It confirms the conviction that a good name is one of life's great blessings. It's fragile, it's tender, but it is abundantly worth the care and devotion required to achieve it and to pass along to one's children as their most treasured legacy. And my grandfather certainly had a good name. But he said on reflection, the simple words of this Mishnah belie a deeper and more profound meaning. Now, the importance of a good name is well documented. Shakespeare in Othello wrote the following, Good name in man and woman, dear my lord, is the immediate jewel of their souls. Who steals my purse steals trash. Tis something, nothing. Twas mine, tis his, and has been slave to thousands. But he that filches from me my good name robs me of that which not enriches him and makes me poor indeed. But this is a common virtue. I would say that every one of us would say about themselves in all sincerity and with good cause that we have a good name. Most of us are so secure in our reputation that when someone says to us, I heard a lot about you, we say, thank you, never doubting that what one heard was good. I have had the experience that I don't jump to that conclusion. <laughs> but this is not what is meant by Kesar Shemtov, the crown of a good name. Because this is simply the lack of an unfavorable judgment. It is reputation, which is motivated by many different things, which is superficial, which is illusory. And there is a monumental distinction between reputation and character. Reputation is what people think about us. Character is what God and the angels know about us. Kesser Shemtov, the crown of a good name, is not awarded on the basis of the acclaim we receive, but rather on what we deserve. And we can tease this meaning from Rabbi Shimon's words by noting two problems in the text that he wrote. There is a problem of the extravagant tone 
of what he says. And there is, secondly, the obvious paradox in the words and construction that he uses. First, the tone. There is a crown of Torah, an accomplishment of Torah, God's, God's law, God's commandments. But then there's something else, a crown of a good name, whatever it means, that's greater than that. It's impossible. Our entire tradition teaches us that there is nothing as great as Torah. In the words of Hillel, the more Torah, the more life. The more study, the more wisdom. Gain a good name and you gain it for yourself. Gain knowledge of Torah and you have gained life in the world to come. How could the Mishnah possibly say that there is something, whatever it is, that is greater than Torah? Perhaps we can understand this by addressing the second obvious question. Rashbi states that there are three crowns, the crown of Torah, the crown of Kahuna, and the crown of Malchus. And then he mentions a fourth. So which one is it? Is it three crowns or is it four crowns? I mean, a child knows how to add better than that. The problem we have with this text comes from an imprecise translation of the words. Because when I said to you that Keser Shem Tov, Ola Al Gabehen, and I translated that as, as is normally translated, the crown of a good name exceeds them all, that's not exactly what the words say. Ole al gabehen more precisely mean rises upon them. In other words, there are three crowns, three areas of excellence in, in spiritual life. And keser shemtov, the crown of a good name, arises through them, through pursuing them. Keser Shemtov is bestowed on that individual who weaves into the fabric of their life the traits of Torah and Kahuna and Malchus. The most important element in our lives as Jews is Torah, about which we say it's a tree of life for those who cling to it. We repeat every single morning in our prayers after listing a number of very important commandments. The Talmud Torah Kenegi Kulam. The study of Torah is equivalent to all of the other mitzvahs combined. What we are doing together right now, you and I, what we are doing studying Torah now is equal to all other religious activity because it challenges our intellect, it inspires our emotions, it brings us closer to God and gives us the tools to live more meaningfully. A Keser Torah comes from one who appreciates that and strives to the best of their ability to excel in that. The second Keser the second crown, 
is the crown of Kahuna, the duties of a Kohen, the Avodah, the service in the Beit HaMikdash, in the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. To merit the crown of the Kohen means that we have to be involved in dedicated service in its broadest sense, service to God and service to man. It means that we take a vital role within the institutions of our community, the schools, the synagogues, the Jewish organizations. It requires concern for the needs of Klal Yisrael, the Jewish people, and for the wider world. It is implicit in the words of Hillel when he said, Al Tifrosh min Hatzibar, do not separate yourself from the community. When we excel in our effort to be of service to God and to man, that's when we merit the Keser Kahuna, the crown of service. Finally, there is the Keser Malchus, the crown of sovereignty, the attribute of leadership. And this includes the caution against false modesty that would cause us to reject involvement in a project by saying that, oh, there are others who are more qualified. I'm not the right person for this job. Our sages criticize one who is qualified to lead and refuses the office. We will be held accountable for those talents and abilities with which we have been blessed, but which we fail to use. Keser Malchus rests on one who not only faces up to his weaknesses, but also acknowledges his strengths and his capacities by employing them in leadership. And when we exert our, exert our effort in these three areas, and we are deserving of the keser, the crown, that each one offers, that is when we ascend to keser shame tov, the crown of a good name. By toiling in Torah and Avoda and Malchus, we ensure the crown of a good name. We receive not just a sterling reputation, but much more than that. We receive the character that God can praise. And my grandfather ended this by saying, may we have the wisdom and the dedication to pursue this goal. And may we have the merit to achieve it. Let's move now to Pirkei Avos. I'm sorry. <clears throat> we just came from there. Let's move now to the Book of Ruth. So, each week I'm trying to provide some piece of background that when we get to Shavuos 
and we learn and we read and we hear the book of Ruth on Shavuos, we will have a deeper appreciation of this text by understanding the ideas that lead up to it. So remember the story. Naomi is a woman who was very wealthy and very important. She was married to Elimelech. She had two children and they left their home of Bethlehem, Bethlehem. And while they were away, her husband and two sons died. And she was left with Ruth, Rus, who was the widow of her son. Technically speaking, her former daughter-in-law, but in this book, she refers to her as her daughter-in-law. And the two of them come back to Israel, to Bethlehem. And they come back impoverished, no assets, no way to support themselves. Two women on their own. So we saw last week that they turned to the mitzvah of the Torah, which was in practice at that time, of Leket, Shikha, and Peah, where those who were in need could come to collect small amounts of food during the harvest time, along with the workers working for the field's owner. And Ruth went to collect and she was able to collect enough and bring it home so that she and Naomi had enough to eat and there was left over. And near the end of the second chapter, Naomi says to Ruth, where were you collecting today? Where were you, in whose field were you working? Now remember, Ruth doesn't come from there. Ruth is a stranger. She is a Gioris, a convert to Judaism. She doesn't know anyone in this town. So she says, the name of the person whose field I was in today, his name is Boaz. The name didn't mean anything to her. But listen to what Naomi says. Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, to, to Ruth, Thank God for the blessing of one who does not forget kindness and compassion, both to those who have passed away and to those who are alive. Naomi said to Ruth, this man is not just a stranger. He's not just anyone. He is our relative. He is our redeemer. What does that mean? He is our redeemer. So that phrase, that word, alludes to a subject that is a major subtext of the book of Ruth. It involves several mitzvahs in the Torah. And understanding these mitzvahs will give us a much deeper appreciation of the entire work. When we began the study of Ruth a few, a few weeks ago, we quoted the comment of our rabbis that the theme of this book is the merit of chesed, of kindness and compassion. It is a book about the kindness of the individual, Ruth and Boaz, what they do for each other, what they both do for Naomi. But it also shows us the chesed 
of society. How does the Torah expect a society to show kindness and compassion, to take care of those who are vulnerable or in need? Now, last week we discussed immediate help through the mitzvah of leket and shikha and peah, collecting the gleanings, what's left over in the field, and that's to provide food, to put food on the table for someone who is hungry. But what about long-term? What about the cycle of poverty? Because as you may understand, poverty causes greater poverty. Wealth usually leads to greater wealth. And those two things lead to greater and greater disparity and lack of anything in common between the poor and the wealthy. How do we break that cycle? How do we not only put food on the table now for someone who is hungry, but enable people to emerge from poverty, to be able to support themselves? So just to give you an example, in our society, just as an example, we have an institution called bankruptcy. Now, what I'm going to say is a gross oversimplification. But the main idea is a person is hopelessly in debt. They declare bankruptcy. The creditors will get only a portion of what is owed to them and their debts are wiped clean and the person can start over debt-free. Yes, many, many details and consequences, yes, but that's the basic idea. The Torah has a different system. And this system is a nexus of several mitzvahs, several commandments that all occur in next week's Torah portion, the Parsha of Bahar. And they surround the mitzvahs of Shemitah, the sabbatical year, Yovel, the jubilee year, and Geula, redemption. So let's just review this very, very briefly. And again, each one of these is not only a subject for a, a class, it's a subject for a series. It's extremely complicated and detailed. So this is just the tiniest briefest, most superficial overview of a gigantic topic well-deserving of intense study. The underlying rationale of all of these mitzvos is in the verse in next week's parsha, where God says, Ki li ha'aretz, the world, God says, belongs to me. Ki gerim v'sosha v'matem imadi, you are renters. You are stewards. You have usufruct, the, use, the right to use this world, but it doesn't belong to you, God says. It belongs to me. And there are a number of mitzvahs that emphasize and deepen this awareness that in Jewish thought, there is actually no such thing as absolute private ownership because everything actually belongs to God. So there's Shemitah, the sabbatical year. By the way, this Rosh Hashanah begins a sabbatical year, so we will be talking a lot more about Shemitah and the sabbatical year in the months to come. Every seven years, 
there is a year where there is no private ownership. All the farmers who have fields are required to unlock their gates. Whatever grows by itself, fruits or vegetables, anyone is allowed to come in and take what they need for their immediate needs. No one is allowed to act as an owner of their field. It belongs to everyone because Kili Haaretz. It's a reminder because it really belongs to God. Six years, you can fool yourself into thinking that it belongs to you. But the seventh year is a reminder. No, it belongs to God. Also in that year, at the end of that year, certain debts are forgiven. So it provides for those who are poor to be treated exactly the same as those who are wealthy. It reduces the disparity in wealth by taking away the advantages of ownership and possessions. We all share equally. That's Shemitah. Yovel is every 50th year. So you have seven year cycle of Shemitah, six years and then Shemitah, six years, seven of those cycles. That's the 49th year. Then you have the 50th year. The 50th year is Yovel, the Jubilee year. All of the laws of Shemitah apply plus in this 50th year, all sales of land, real estate, that had been made over the previous 50 years return to their original owner. Whatever you bought goes back. If you had to sell something within the previous 50 years because of poverty, you couldn't afford to keep that land. You needed the cash to support yourself. It comes back to you in the Yeovil year. And once you get your field back, now you can support yourself. You have land. You can grow something on it. You could rent it out to somebody else. It also keeps your connection to Eretz Yisrael. This, this rule only applies in the land of Israel. But if, if I had to sell my portion in the land of Israel, it's temporary. It's going to come back to me. It's going to stay in my family throughout the generations, even if it is temporarily taken out of my possession. In other words, there's no such thing as a sale of real estate. There is only leasing of real estate. Finally, you don't have to wait for the 50th year. There is a third mitzvah. And the Torah explains it as follows. Throughout the entire land of your inheritance, the land of Israel. There will be a redemption for your lands. In the following case, when your brother becomes poor, and he is forced to sell his land, his home, his real estate, his farm, his fields, his forests, because he needs the cash, because he can't afford it. 
it is possible for the relative who is closest to that one who sold their property, v'go'al es mimkar achiv, and he can redeem the land that his relative sold. In other words, he can buy it back and return it to his relative. Now, this subject of geula, of redemption of property, again, is very complicated. There are lots of different situations and, and rules and details. I'm just giving you just a, a bird's eye view of the overall subject. If a person had to sell their field or their home because of poverty, their closest relative can buy it back the buyer is required to sell it to the relative at the same price that he paid for it. He's not allowed to take any profit. Ordinarily, if I buy something from you, you don't have the right to buy it back. Certainly, you don't have the right to buy it back at the same price. Once you sell it to me, it's mine. I don't have to sell it back to you. And in fact, if I buy a field from you and some third party comes to me and says, I'll I'll, I want to buy the field. I could say no. I don't have to sell it to anybody except if it's your Goel. If it's your Redeemer, if it's your closest relative who's doing it in order to buy it back. So we're going to keep the price down. Same price that I paid for it. I have to accept from you on the condition that you're buying it back in order to return it to your relative. Now, this Mitzvah emphasizes at least four different important aspects of social policy. Number one, it shows us the importance of connection to land, of ownership. There's a tremendous difference in social policy between ownership and renting. Ownership is something that stays within me. I have an incentive to invest in what I own. I don't have an incentive to invest in what I rent. I'm giving it back. Why should I make it better? I'll just try to take all the profit I can from it. Encouraging ownership versus rental or leasing is something that has a benefit to all of society. It improves land and uh, neighborhoods and uh, communities. So that's the first goal, allowing someone to maintain ownership rather than having to rent from someone else. Number two, the importance of being able to own, earn a living and not to have to receive a handout, not to have to rely on the compassion of others. Because if you sell your field, certainly in an agricultural society, you have sold your means of support. If there's a way for you to get your field back, you will get back also your means of support. You can now grow your own food and enjoy it and sell it. You can lease it out to others and derive an income from it. Number three, this philosophical lesson that ownership is not absolute. This in a philosophical sense reduces the gap between the wealthy and the impoverished because 
again, from a philosophical point of view, it's not, it's not yours. It all belongs to God. We're all equal before God. Why did God give you more than me? Probably because he put it in your possession that you should share it with me. But there is no inherent value in having more because it's not yours. You're borrowing it. And finally, this concept emphasizes the institutionalization of the moral obligation of relatives who are able to help to do so. Naomi and Elimelech are wealthy, important people. They leave their home in Beis Lechem. Naomi's husband dies. Her two sons die. Naomi comes back to Israel years later with Ruth, impoverished. All of her property, all of her wealth was sold off to satisfy creditors. She has nothing. Naomi and Ruth return and there is no one to help them. But clearly, there is an institution in the form of the mitzvot of the Torah that were in application 3,000 years ago in Israel to which they could turn. Naomi says to Ruth, go to Boaz because he is our Goel. He is our Redeemer. That's the significance of what Naomi says to Ruth about Boaz, because this is Naomi's plan. Boaz is a Goel. He is financially able to help easily. So Naomi has a plan where she has Ruth ask Boaz to fulfill the mitzvah of Geula, of redemption of property, to purchase the fields that had belonged to Naomi, but were taken away due to her debts, that he should buy back that property and return that property to Naomi. And then she'll be able to escape poverty. She'll be able to support herself. This is how the Torah intends for it to work. And in the book of Ruth, we see these mitzvos in action. But there's one problem, and that is the mitzvah of redemption goes to the closest relative first. And Boaz is not the closest relative. There is someone else who is called Plony. Hopefully later we'll have a chance to discuss why he is called Plony, but that's a separate subject. Plony is closer than Boaz, because we're talking about the fields that Elimelech owned. Plony is Elimelech's brother. Boaz is Elimelech's nephew. So Plony comes first. So Ruth asks Boaz to be the redeemer, to be the Goel. And Boaz says, I would love to, but I'm not first in line. Plony is first in line. Okay, we will see later how Boaz overcomes this problem. 
but this is the existing mitzvah, which we see in practice in the book of Ruth, whereby a society helps those in need. Someone who had to sell their land, they will be able to get it back and escape the cycle of poverty. So I ask you to please keep these ideas and these mitzvahs in mind as you learn the book of Ruth. Okay. Let's turn to one final subject. As I mentioned earlier, tonight is the beginning of Lagba Omer, the 33rd day of the Omer counting from Pesach until Shavuos, it's the 50th day. This mitzvah, by the way, to count these days, to count the Omer, is in our Parsha, this week of Emor. And one of these 50 days, this one tonight, Lamed Gimel, the 33rd, is a special day. And tonight and tomorrow we celebrate Lag Omer. And it's fascinating because it is entirely unclear why it is special. And some of the reasons that are offered seem to contradict each other and many of them defy logic. Almost all of them defy any basis in any traditional text. Fascinating. So let me start tonight with one approach that I believe has a particular resonance for us this year. And I think that we will benefit from integrating its message. Our Parsha, as I mentioned, has the mitzvah to count the Omer. And I discussed this earlier this week, to count the days from Pesach until Shavuos, to count the days from leaving Egypt to arriving at Sinai and experiencing God reveal himself at Sinai. Much later in our history, another characteristic of these days emerge. And we find this in a passage in the Talmud. The Talmud says, tells the following story. This story occurred a number of years after the Chorban Bayesheni, the destruction of the Second Temple. So it occurred about the year 100, 150 of the Common Era, something like that. The Talmud says, Shnei Masar Elef Zugim Talmidim Hayulala Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva, the great Rabbi Akiva, had 12,000 pairs of students. That's 24,000 students. Migvat ad Antipras, from one end of the country to the other. 24,000 students, Rebbe Akiva. Vukulan mesu beperek echad. And all 24,000 of these students of Rabbi Akiva died during one season. Because they did not treat each other 
with respect. Then the Talmud says, in what period was this? Kulam mesu mi Pesach viad atzeres. They all died in one given year between Pesach and Shavuos during these 50 days. Now this, so that's the end of the passage. This passage is mysterious on multiple levels. 24,000 of the most elite, highly regarded scholars died within 50 days. I mean, can we even comprehend the impact that that would have on a nation? And because they didn't treat each other with respect. First of all, what do you mean? What, what, in what way did they not treat each other with respect? And what, what exactly did they do wrong? And whatever your answer to that question is, how in the world is that deserving of a punishment of death? God forbid. I mean, okay, you should treat people with respect, but I mean, but they should all die? And further, Rebbe Akiva, the teacher of all these people, was the paragon. Remember, Rebbe Akiva is the one who says, Love your fellows yourself. This is the unifying principle, the foundational principle of the entire Torah, of all Judaism. How could it be that his students had gone so far astray from his teaching from his core message? The Talmud gives us no answers and no hints to any answers. And we don't find in Jewish life any consequence of this story until centuries later when the practice is developed to observe these days from the end of Pesach until the day before Shavuos as a period of mourning. That's why during these days we do not have any weddings, we do not enjoy live music, we don't get haircuts or do other things to groom or beautify ourselves. Like a person who is in mourning, we are in mourning for the students of Rabbi Akiva. And there is no answer to the question, how does this character of sadness and mourning get, a mourning get overlaid on the biblical character of these days of enthusiasm and anticipation at arriving at Mount Sinai to experience God's revelation? How do these two moods find a congruence? No answers. Only questions and guesses. There are guesses. There are guesses. Maybe the text of the Talmud is some kind of a code. It's telling some other story, some different story that for some reason could not be spoken aloud, but only alluded to in some metaphoric manner. Who knows? And then in the 13th century, the 13th century is over a thousand years after the events of Rabbi Akiva and his students. A thousand years later, 
we have Rabbi Menachem Meiri, a famous Spanish Talmudic scholar. He is the first one, the first source to record the following. Remember, a thousand years after the events. This is the first we're hearing about it. The Kabbalah Biyadagaonim, there is a tradition passed down by the earlier sages. We don't, we don't have anything written down earlier than this, what I'm reading to you right now. But the tradition is, Shebiyom Lamed Gimel Ba'omer, on the 33rd day of the Omer, Pascha Hamisa, nobody died. Meaning 24,000 died between Pesach and Shavuos. But there was one day in the middle, day 33, on that day nobody died. People died the day before, people died the day after, all the other days people died, a total of 24,000, but on one day, the 33rd day of the Omer, Nobody died. Now that is the first mention of anything special about that day. But another 300 years passes before the first mention of this day as a celebration. A happy day where mourning is lifted. Weddings take place. We listen to music. We get haircuts if we have an appointment. Which is how we commemorate Lagba Omer today, as a happy day, a joyous day. But what's the root of the celebration? What is it that we are celebrating on this day? As I said, there are many answers to that question, but based on the sources that I shared with you tonight, one approach is, during a terrible period of our history, when there was incomprehensible tragedy taking place day after day after day, there was one day when nothing bad happened. And it is the genius of the Jewish people that we turned nothing bad happened into a reason to celebrate. Great is nice. Exciting is nice. Good, calm is much more valuable. Let's try to take this from Lagba Omer. With all the terrible things that have happened to us, that are happening to us, when there is a good day, when there is a calm day, when there is simply a moment when nothing bad is happening, grab it and celebrate it. Don't take it for granted. Turn that into a holiday. That's the message of this day of Lag Ba'omer. My friends, I want to thank you so much for joining me tonight. I want to wish you a wonderful evening. 
a happy Lagba Omer, a fantastic Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.